Good morning, church family. Uh, I want to thank you for tuning in today. Uh, I hate making these weather, weather calls, and I'll admit I am eating my words from last Saturday night when we gathered in worship about trying my best to avoid uh, the screen again and being in the room all by myself. Uh, it's a tough call. Unsure what the night will hold as far as refreezing all the beautiful snow that we received. Um, but thank you for your gift of your presence, even if it's in through technology uh, this morning. And so um, if you have the Bible, go ahead and grab it and open it with me to the book of Acts. We're going to continue in our sermon series where we are stewarding the story, our stewardship emphasis for our church this year, uh, but also a time for us as a church where we'll introduce new mission, vision, value, language for us as a church. Last week, uh, last Saturday, uh, we heard a new mission statement, we exist to glorify God and make disciples among our neighbors and the nations. Had a beautiful time of presentation and prayer on Wednesday night. And today what we want to do is we want to see uh, in, in, in the text of God's Word, um, the truth and reality that the New Testament church is called to something. And we believe our vision language helps us see that, helps us understand that. Uh, that we, by God's grace, we will see disciples sent, churches strengthened, and communities transformed by the power of the gospel. And so this morning, in our time in God's Word, uh, we want to see how this is both a biblical vision and also a, a beautiful vision for, for us in our church and also the church throughout uh, throughout history. And so as we endeavor to do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, we need you. God, would you overcome the barriers that exist in technology? Father, I pray, God, that you would, even in the distance of not physically being together in the same room, Father, ignite our hearts, Lord, around the truth of your word. God, Spirit, stir within us, awaken us, help us to see uh, scripture, the text of Scripture, as both biblical and beautiful, and call us to obedience as we seek to live out the vision we believe you're calling us to as a church. And so, Lord Jesus, be honored and glorified, we pray, in this time of in your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So what is vision? Uh, even now, maybe you seated in the comforts of your living room or wherever you're watching this, uh, take a minute and look around the room. What do you see? See, vision for us, it, it helps us physically in life. It helps us set the direction. It helps us set our focus and our gaze on things. But here's something helpful to remember that seeing and having vision are not the same thing. And every single person who uses reading glasses will attest to that. that you can see perfectly clear, but your vision is not perfectly clear. You can see your eyes are open, but there's not focus, there's not direction, there's not atten attention with your vision. We also play this out every single time we go on a road trip. Trust many of you all have done that at some point in time in your life. Think about what you see in a road trip. Hopefully you check your blind spot when you're merging, you look in your rear view mirror, your side view mirror. But hopefully when you're driving, most of the time, your gaze, your eyes, your vision is focused on the direction that is ahead of you. It's not a casual glance ahead of you that you are focused on what is ahead and what is ahead even gives direction to what's beside you or what's behind you. Helen Keller says it like this, that there's one thing worse 
than being blind, and that is having sight with no vision. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18 says, Where there is a lack of vision, the people perish. So today, as we seek the Lord, we want to turn to the book of Acts. Specifically, we want to look at the church at Antioch. And our aim this morning is, is again, nothing new, nothing trendy. But I believe our aim this morning, the aim of First Baptist Church of Rocky Mountain in our days ahead, uh, has been the aim of the New Testament church from the very beginning. Let's see together how this vision that God is calling us to, by God's grace, we will see disciples sent, we will see uh, churches strengthened, we will see communities transformed, that that is a biblical vision. Let me take a minute and kind of paint the picture for you at the church of Antioch. The church of Antioch is one of the first New Testament churches. It's a church where we see Jew and Gentile where they come together. It's a church where Barnabas and Saul, uh, who became Paul, um, where they came and they taught together. They, they pastored this diverse church together. We know in the book of Acts that they stayed there and they taught one whole year. Acts 11 verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is the testimony of the book of Acts. The hand of the Lord was with them in this moment, in this place, and a huge number of people turned to the Lord because of the ministry of this church. But this church was not just known for the people that came to it. It was also known from the people who left and went away. It was the mother-sending church, if you will, to the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. You see, in this church, they had the heart of one of the first New Testament churches. And in that picture, it was a heart to grow and expand the kingdom of God. So for us, our invitation is into this story. The same story that God has been telling through His church from the very beginning. It's a picture, again, of what we will call kingdom math. We talked about this last week in our service, where the big difference between multiplication and addition. What we see in the book of Antioch in kingdom math is the difference between uh, receiving and sending, and how the New Testament church has always been marked by its kingdom perspective, the, the ability for us to see and send beyond ourselves. And this is particularly challenging for us, I think, in a culture of Christianity in America that is particularly me-centered. So we choose a church based upon our preferences. We like to attend church at our frequency when it's comfortable or convenient, or we spend our entire life trying to define Christianity around us. Um, what we see in the book of Acts really pushes against that selfish tendency. Even Acts 20, verse 35 says, It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And the model of church in Acts is a model of this principle. It's a model of this truth. What does it look like when the church of Jesus Christ is focused more on the growth and the kingdom of God than they are on themselves? To be a part of kingdom work, and we've said this all throughout our stewardship emphasis, is that we must hold with open hands all that God has entrusted to us, whether that be our people, our resources, our priorities. It could go on and on and on. But the heart that we see in this biblical vision of a New Testament church is for us to hold those things with open hands. And so let's see, kind of in three points, if you will, 
the church in Antioch model for us this biblical vision of New Testament church. If you found the book of Acts by now, I hope you have. We'll, be Acts, we'll read Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse 3, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Acts 13 is a beautiful picture of the New Testament church with a heart to send disciples. That sending disciples is the very core of what we believe about the New Testament church. We see it pictured in the work of Jesus, in the words of Jesus, in the Great Commission. We see it lived in the early church. You see, the church of Antioch was made up of a variety of people, Jew and Gentile, came from a variety of places with a variety of gifts. But look at the unity that we see in verse 2, that they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Of all the diversity, of all the differences they brought to the table, they gathered together and found unity in worshiping the Lord and fasting. And you see, it's in that unity amongst diversity that the Holy Spirit said to them. It's important. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit still speaks. The question for us is, do we have space for Him to speak? In our hearts, in our lives, in our worship, in our fasting and and prayer. Like, if the Holy Spirit showed up, would we know it? If he spoke, would we hear it? And notice the personal pronoun that's used. We. Oftentimes when we talk about hearing the Holy Spirit, we like to use the uh, personal pronoun I or me. What we see in Acts chapter 13 is what God was doing, what the Spirit of God was doing was so evident in the early church that it encompassed all of them, that he spoke to all, and they all received the word of the Spirit and obeyed the word of the Spirit. The Spirit spoke in corporate terms, and the Spirit said, set aside Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. And the church, after fasting and praying, laid their hands on them and sent them off. Notice the picture here. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit sets apart. The church sins. The picture here is the church was obedient to what the Spirit of God was calling them to and calling them to do. There was an attentiveness to the Spirit. That the early church didn't just set their own plans or didn't just set their own agenda. What we see in Acts 13 is this group of people from a variety of places, variety of perspectives, variety of, of talents and gifts, they gathered together and their intention in their gathering was to worship the Lord, fast and pray with the expectation that the Spirit would say something to them. And we see this act that the Holy Spirit calls them to and in man's understanding and in man's mind, like it does not make sense. You see, the church in Antioch was growing. It was, it was healthy. It was vibrant. God's word was changing the hearts and lives of countless people. 
We see that, and we know throughout history that the church here was, great, it was gaining the stronghold on the city. And what does the Holy Spirit tell them to do? Tells them to send out your two best leaders. Not Saul or Barnabas, but both of them. There's a huge, or a couple huge missionary principles that we can take from this text. The Holy Spirit does not send out lone rangers. He sends out people together. And we also see the, the willingness of the church, the New Testament church, to send out their very best. And in the depths of their heart, they were committed to send out their very best disciples for the spread of the gospel. And that in and of itself is a demonstration of both faith and trust. That they had faith in Jesus in the Spirit of God that was speaking to them, and they had a deep trust in the promises of God that they were seeking to obey. So they, in their heart, they were committed not to possess certain people or certain things or to master a certain way of doing church and to hang on to it for the rest of human history. They understood that their time in this church, in this city, which they were stewarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were serving Christ and stewarding his mysteries, as we've talked about for the past few weeks. And so what then is the result of this? As they sent disciples, the result of that was churches were strengthened. To do what? The work that God had called them to do. And that specific work was the work of strengthening churches. It's helpful to see from the very beginning in the New Testament, the missionary work that God's people were called to was always church-centric. Meaning that as Paul and, and or Saul and Barnabas were going and, and, and sending and, and preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, the purpose and the result of their going and sending was to establish churches. And it's not to say that humanitarian aid is not helpful or useful, what we see, a biblical principle here, is that neighbor love flows from the benevolent heart of the church. And so they knew the most helpful thing they could do in all the places they were about to go would, would be to establish churches along the way, they, to plant and start new churches. And Saul and Barnabas set out on what we now know to be Paul's first missionary journey. And in this, they visited three specific regions— they visited Cyprus, Pamphylia, and Galatia. We're not exactly sure how many believe that in this one to two year journey, they started nine new churches in these three regions. Uh, we know for sure, although we don't know exactly how many, uh, that there were churches started in the region of Galatia. It's where we get the New Testament book Galatians. Uh, Galatians chapter 1 verse 2 says, To the churches in Galatia. So they were going, they were, they were sent out of the church in Antioch, and in that they were going to, to, to strengthen and to start new local churches all throughout these regions in which they were going. We get to the point of Acts chapter 14, verse 20 and 21. When they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium, and to Antioch. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
Verse 23, we'll continue to read that verse. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they go and they strengthen the souls of these disciples. They gather them into churches. They appoint elders for them in every single church. They fast and they pray and they depart. They preach. They made many disciples. And then they kind of made their way back through is the picture here. They started something and then they came back to strengthen it. That strengthening was both in the souls and hearts of those who called that specific church home, but we also see an organizational strengthening here, that they appointed elders. And we see that as a plural term. They did not just leave each church with one singular solo pastor, one dictator, if you will, to give out orders for the church to follow. The picture that we see is that they gave and appointed elders, plural, pastors, plural, to shepherd and lead these people. And then they fasted and prayed over them and through them, and they departed. And such a helpful reminder for us that the concern of the New Testament church was not just starting something that was flashy or trendy, but strengthening something that would last. You see, these disciples that were sent by the church at Antioch were sent to strengthen something that would last. And in this equation, if you will, the result of disciples being sent, churches being um, strengthened, is that communities were truly transformed. Let's continue reading in Acts chapter 14, verse 24 through 28. And they passed through Poseidon and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga and went down to Athala, ah, <laughs> I tried, I practiced all week pronouncing that word. I still didn't get it right. Um, verse, verse 26. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Verse 27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Verse 28, And they remained no little time with the disciples. The picture here is they came back home to the church in Antioch. And as they made their way back through the churches that they had just planted, verse 26, the testimony arose that they had completed the work that they had fulfilled. Verse 27, they arrived back and they gathered the church together. I know many of you have sat through a missionary report here at First Baptist Church of Rocky Mount. That is exactly what's happening here. They're sharing testimony to this local church in Antioch that sent them out of all that God had done, of all that they had been entrusted to do, and how God had been faithful to them. They were literally had the heart of a steward. They were serving Christ and stewarding his mysteries, and they came back to the church that sent them to speak and share testimony about this. But don't miss this in the end of verse 27. And how he, referring back to God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And then in the last sense, they remained there no little Time. This picture here is when they came back home, they were unrushed, they were unhurried, they were enjoying the richness of biblical community. There was a warm celebration at all that God had done, that God 
had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And here's the picture. Like when God opens a door of faith, something changes. And if we go back and and look throughout uh, New Testament church history, we see this door of faith that was opened for the Gentiles is literally the foundation of faith that we stand upon this day. Seated in your home because of this snow and, and, and gathered here in this video room with a casual modified worship service that we had to put together uh, because of what's going on. Like in all of this, like we stand upon the foundation of this door of faith that had been opened to the Gentiles. And here's the summary. Like when God opens a door in your heart, in your life, in our community, in our city, on your street, in our church, things change. Like when God opens a door, communities are truly transformed. And we've seen this all throughout the history of our church, the story of our church, the story of your life. The way in which God opens a door for us to walk in and walk through in faith. And so we see that the idea of sending disciples, strengthening churches, Transforming communities is not a new idea. The church in Antioch and the church in Jerusalem, these were were their first two churches. Uh, Antioch, a beautiful picture of both what happens when uh, Jew and Gentile come together. Like this idea of what a church is and and, and how they act and, and what they do and what they're called to is not something that we can create or should create. It's what the New Testament church has been doing from the very beginning. So we see the church at Antioch, by God's grace, they saw disciples sent. They saw churches strengthened. They saw communities transformed by the power of the gospel. So what we believe God is calling us to as a church is not a a new trendy vision. We believe that it is a biblical vision. We believe that this is the picture of what the New Testament church is to do and has been doing from the very beginning. It is a biblical picture, but it's also a beautiful picture. This biblical vision that God has given us is a beautiful vision as God works it in and through us. It's nothing new. It's been the heart of the New Testament church from the very beginning. And it's nothing new for us either because it's been the heart of our church from the very beginning. Perhaps you've heard the story of our beginnings as a church. That in 1880, a businessman named Noah Biggs from the big town of Scotland Neck looked on the growing railroad town of Rocky Mount and noticed a lack of gospel presence in this growing and budding downtown area. That at the time... There were 21 saloons in these city blocks that surround our church today, and yet no Baptist church. So as a missionary Baptist, Noah Biggs began uh, to associate with other churches, mobilize other people to begin a new missionary Baptist work in downtown Rocky Mount. First Baptist Church of Rocky Mount was constituted with nine charter members, on June the 1st of 1880. And by December 12th of that same year, they had purchased a block of land 
on this same block that we sit on today, on this same church street that we sit on today. This gospel work was planted because disciples were sent from like-minded churches, from sister churches who shared a heart to see a new gospel work begin in this growing city of Rocky Mount. And you see, this part of our DNA has been with us from the very beginning. In our first 33 years of existence, we grew from nine members to 900 members. By 1912, First Baptist Church had 450 members, and don't miss this, but they had already sent out 440 other members to start three new churches in our city. From the very beginning, somewhere deep inside of us, deep inside of our DNA, we have understood that what we are and what we do and what we're called to as a church is bigger than us. Or to use the words that are floating around Christian culture today, that we have understood that our sending capacity is more important than our seating capacity. This has been true in us since 1895 when we gathered as a church to start our first church plant, North Rocky Mount Church, to today, where over the course of history we have seen, and depending on how you classify some, around 21 new churches in our city be birthed through the cooperative efforts of First Baptist Church of Rocky Mount, because we have believed throughout our history in sending disciples and strengthening churches to transform our city. This is the testimony that God has told in us and through us, but not just in our city, countless others. Through our indirect support of the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board and the North Carolina Baptist work, and sometimes through our direct partnerships with these organizations, we have seen gospel work continue to grow and to flourish because we have always been our best as a church when we are sending disciples across town to serve, across the world on mission trips, or perhaps even are going across the street, this street and your street, for the purpose of strengthening the church of Jesus Christ, our own church, new churches, hurting churches, suffering churches, cooperating churches, that we exist as a church and we know that we're not in this alone. We desire and have desired from the very beginning to cooperate for the good of the capital C church around the world, for the purpose of transforming communities. You see, a neighborhood should never be the same if it is home to a vibrant and healthy church. So as we look around the world now, as we look around our city now, as we look around our own neighborhood now, what some neighborhoods need, what our world needs, what our nation needs are vibrant, healthy churches in every community so that we can see those communities transformed by the power of the gospel. In that history, let me highlight two specific time periods and pastors. The first is John Kitchelow. He was pastor of First Baptist from 1917 to 1953. The second I want to highlight is Bill Grisham, pastor from 1990 to 2011. John Kitchelow's tenure as pastor here was 36 years. In that 36 years, First Baptist Church of Rocky Mount planted nine churches 
And our history tells us that some 4,000 new members were added to First Baptist Church of Rocky Mount uh, during his tenure. But you see, we didn't keep all of them. We sent them to strengthen and to transform. Bill Grisham, similar story, 21-year tenure as our pastor, a church under his leadership, partnered together with other churches, with other conventions to start four, about four new churches. Um, that Sorry, Bill, that history book hasn't been compiled yet to reflect the membership total, but the evidence of these two tenured pastors is this, that they believed by God's grace in sending disciples and strengthening churches to transform communities by the power of the gospel. And so I share this because this is not out of reach for you, First Baptist Church. It is not out of reach for us, First Baptist Church. The argument that I would make, it, it is our God-given DNA. It is the reason in which this church began in 1880, and it is this reason that this church will survive and thrive for 800 more years if we can stay grounded and rooted with the DNA that we were birthed with. Some of you remember the stories of these beautiful tenures. Some of you are the stories of these beautiful tenures. Some of you have been sent to strengthen churches. Some of you have seen with your own eyes communities be transformed by the power of the gospel. I've heard you tell us stories in committee meetings with tears flowing down your cheeks, remembering what God has taught you through the work of this church. At times in sharing conversations in my office and in the halls of this building, to see you with tears in your eyes, remember how God has been so faithful to you as you were sent to strengthen, to see God and the power of the gospel truly change and transform people's hearts, people's lives, people's homes, and entire communities. You see, this is not just what we do as a church. It's who we are as a church. By God's grace, all this will happen. And that phrase is so important at the beginning of this vision statement. We believe that this cannot be a reflection of our own strength, of our own power. This only will continue to happen because God is gracious to us. You see, our ability to be used by Him is not because of any merit found within us, but because of the mercy that is found within Christ. So as we sin, we sin with the understanding of God's grace. And as we see God's grace, this next phrase, we will see. When we say that we will see, we're not asking you to look through the eyes of flesh. We're not asking you to do what makes sense. You see, in the church of Antioch, it didn't make sense for them to sin. They're two best leaders, but they saw in faith. And so you see the call of our heart, the call of our life, the call of our church is for us to look through the eyes of faith. Or as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, for we walk by faith, not by faith sight. And as we look, we see disciples sent, churches strengthened, communities transformed by the power of the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to 
the Greek. So when we say that we're doing all this with the power of the gospel, it's important that we see the power of the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Those in our hearts and in our minds we think are beyond God's grace. Those that we don't understand how in the world that situation can change, that city can change, that neighborhood can change. You see, those statements and those ways of thinking show within us how little power we think the gospel has. So that's why when we look in grace, see through the eyes of faith the work that God is calling us to, He's not calling to do it in our own power. He's calling us to do it in the power of the gospel. And I would argue, church, this is birthed within our DNA. It's not just what we have done over our 141 years of existence. It's who we are as a people. I believe you share this testimony in your own heart. But there is a big difference between innate behavior and learned behavior. Right? We see this played out in people and you know, I mean, even, even in, in, in animals, right? Like we have a, a golden retriever. So playing fetch with him, like retrieving something with him is something innate within him. But it's not innate within him to sit still while I hold a treat in my hand and go hide and then call his name and he comes and finds me. Like you see that there is a, a bribe there or for him to sit and stay whenever we issue commands to him. There's a, a bribe. We, we have taught him something. Or even for you, raising your own children. Like, it is not innate within them to clean up after themselves. Like, they leave their shoes all over the house. And that's learned behavior. And so we say, hey, put, put away your shoes. Put away your toys. And you see, for us as a church, just because this was birthed within us doesn't mean that we can just leave it there and depart from it. We have to continually come back to it. Because this is also learned behavior. Like, think of it like this. Just because your mom taught you to have good manners does not mean that your children will automatically have them. And those of you who are young parents know this struggle. It is a constant teaching. Even the most stable, respectful, the best DNA in the world, there are still behaviors that have to be reaffirmed and taught. And what psychology and sociology teach us and we and Amy and I can speak of as adoptive parents, is it's those taught behaviors that are even stronger than what is innate within us. You see, our three daughters don't look a whole lot like us, um, and, and we can't claim the DNA that they possess. But I promise, if you know our daughters, you know how well they embody us as parents because, you see, they've learned from us. So you see our responsibility as disciples, as church members, as grandparents, as parents, is to constantly be teaching the behavior that we want our children to possess. That's why we understand God to be a generational God, because we are continually passing this on from one generation to the next. So that when we say that by God's grace, we will see disciples sent, churches strengthened, and communities transformed by the power of the gospel. Some of you hear those words and you think to yourself, well, we're not healthy enough to do that. Well, you don't get strong before you start working out. You start. And strength builds. Stamina builds. 
Some of you think that, like, oh, I'm, I'm too young or I'm too old or I don't have enough left to give. Like, listen, all God needs is your heart. It's all that he has ever used from us at First Baptist Churches is obedient hearts willing to step out in faith and obey the words and work of Jesus. You see, in the truth of God's word and the power of God's spirit, we as a church, we have enough for all that God is calling us to do. And I've seen it, church, just this year. I've sat in deacons meetings. I've had conversations with church members. I've sat in committee meetings. I've been on on, on member care visits with people in our church. And I can testify time after time after time again that this heart is in us. It is what we desire to do. It's why our heart breaks for what it breaks for. It's why our heart celebrates what it celebrates. And so the invitation for us is to look to the New Testament church, to see the principles that we see, and to live those in obedience. You see, we believe that this is the DNA of the New Testament church. It was the DNA of the church of Antioch. It has been the DNA of our church for 141 years. And so it's our responsibility and and faithfulness to God and obedience to His Spirit to continue to connect the innate behavior that we possess as a church because of our DNA, because of our history, because of our legacy, because of our heritage, to take that and to constantly and continually connect that to learned behavior that we believe by the grace of God we will send disciples, that we will see churches strengthened, we will see communities transformed by the power of the gospel. I wish I could be delivering this and seeing you face-to-face in person because pastorally I want to say a couple of things as we close to the cynic or to the critic who's viewing this and hearing this with the heart of skepticism. Like my specific prayer for you this week in my preparation was that God would give you the eyes of faith to see his work. Stop looking with your own eyes. Stop looking with the eyes of your own flesh and look to the eyes and with the eyes of faith. To those who are hearing this and and perhaps a little complacent with what God's calling them to do in their heart and life, I pray and knew that your heart would be gripped by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you would believe anew in what it can do, that it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, Jew and Gentile. And for those of you, those of us, maybe I fall into this category the one who thinks they have it all figured out. May we, may us, may we as a church, may may God give us the patience for us, not just to see with faith, but to walk by faith. Knowing that he's called us to this, and we need to be faithful one day at a time, one step at a time, and allow him to work through us. As we close, it's an important reminder that what we do for Christ has always been rooted in what he has done for us. That he calls us to things as a church because God sent his son to die for the church. He sent his son to pay the penalty for your sin 
as an individual so that you would no longer have to bear the weight of that through the blood of his own son. He became the once for all sacrifice for sin and you by grace through faith can accept that gift of salvation. And once we accept that gift of salvation, God's not just done with us and leave us to figure the rest out on our own. God calls us to be a part of, as it says in 1 Corinthians, the body of Christ. Many members, one body. And so you see, we need to remember, before we get this long to-do list of what we need to do for God, we need to always remember what He has done for us in giving us His Son. Perhaps you're hearing this today or somehow you stumbled upon this sermon and, and, and message. Hear our heart. We want you to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. He is our firm foundation for all that we do in life. He is our hope in all situations and all circumstances. For us, the church, we need to be reminded of who we were created to be and who we were called to be. We believe that this vision statement for us captures that story well, that we believe in the grace of God and the power of the gospel, and in that sandwich, we believe that we are called to send disciples, strengthen churches, and transform communities. It's our hope, and it's our prayer. I want to thank you again for taking a few moments to, 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 to follow along with this sermon series. And we understand these are not ideal circumstances in which this has been delivered. But I hope you've seen a, a biblical vision for what God desires the church to be in the book of Acts, specifically in the book or in the church of Antioch. And I hope your heart is compelled for us at First Baptist Church to live into, continue to be, the church that God has created us to be since 1880 and continues and desires for us to continue to be in this moment and into the future. That by God's grace, we will see through the eyes of faith, disciples sent, churches strengthened, and communities transformed by the power of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are viewing this. Lord, we wish, desire that we could be together in person. But Lord, I I pray that our collective heart as a church spread all across this city. God is beating with new eyes, new passion, new encouragement, new grace. Father, because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he came to earth to be our sacrifice for sin. And Lord, because that's true, we can accept him, We can have salvation offered by him. And Lord, we can begin this journey of sanctification, of growing into your image and into your likeness within the context of a local church. So Father, we pray that you would awaken our hearts as a people to who you are and your continued call on our lives. God, help us not to be satisfied just with our birth DNA as a church, God, with the innate behavior you've given us as a church, God, help us to continue to learn. Help us to continue to grow. Help us to continue to be strengthened in the work you're calling us to in sending and strengthening and transforming by your grace and through your power. Lord Jesus, we're helpless without you. So we need you. And Lord Jesus, we pray 
as we think, as we respond, and as we reflect. God, that you would be honored and and, and well-pleased. In Jesus' name, amen.